This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Good to see everybody this morning. Um, would, uh, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10? Once again this morning, we'll continue our reading there, 1 Corinthians Chapter 10. Uh, we'll be reading verses 14 down through 22. Chapter 10, 14 through 22. Would you stand? <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he Let's pray. Father, we come, Lord, asking again for your aid. We thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for your spirit, guides us into all truth. So we pray now, Lord, as we consider this passage, um, Lord, that you open our understanding. Lord, grant that that this may affect us the way that you intend, that, that we may... Uh, be changed by Your truth, sanctified by Your Word, so that we may grow in the knowledge of You, learning how to walk through this world in such a way that reflects Your character and brings glory and honor to Your name. Lord, move on our hearts in such a way that we treasure You, the knowledge of Christ above all things, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Zach and Michael. Appreciate the help. Um, we come back to a, really a common theme here. Of course, Paul hasn't hasn't left um, his discussion. And, and in fact, this um, argument that we're coming to the tail end of here in, in, this, in this section started back in, in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, what is at issue here specifically? In other words, what, what Paul is responding to, uh, and we talked about this before, that the Corinthians write, uh, apparently wrote a letter to Paul raising... Uh, what I think really amounted to objections with his teaching, so so they they would ask, uh, and, and I've gone through some explanation on this before. So you may you may be sitting here thinking now uh, you, you're uh, you're implying a lot. You know we don't even have the letter that they wrote, but I've tried, you know kind of tried to explain that as we go. It is based on some speculation, no doubt here, but we we do know that they sent him a letter, and by his response. It seems that they are raising issues with his, his teaching because they are questioning his authority. And so he is responding to them issue by issue. Now, the specific one here is eating meat offered to idols. You see that again in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, to, to kind of give you the, the uh, essence of where Paul's going, that thing in and of itself... Is, is not a problem, necessarily. Just eating the meat that has been offered to idols. And remember, we're talking about 
um, meat that has been offered in sacrifice to, to pagan idols in pagan temples. So I know this is a little different than things we deal with today. You, you, you probably have not uh, run across this, this problem in your Christian walk. But, uh, you know, you never know. We run, we run into some, to some uh, strange things sometimes. <clears throat> but this takes us to another issue, which is a little deeper than another one. The second one is this, and how, how are they doing it? Where is this happening? Well, it seems like the, the major problem that, had, that Paul has with what they're doing, it, and this seems to me to be strongly implied here in the text, is that they are actually attending pagan sacrifices in pagan temples in order to do this. Now, that's an astonishing thing. And I remember I had a, uh, a friend years ago, Hopefully he's still a friend. He just no, he just doesn't live around here anymore. But a friend years ago, who um, in some discussion about this passage, just just out and out rejected the idea. He said, "There's no way that somebody truly born again could go sit and participate in a uh, pagan sacrificial feast in a pagan temple." So he he basically interpreted this as as yes, they were eating meat offered to idols, but they probably didn't actually attend the sacrifice. Paul is just kind of saying that hypothetically. If you did, it would cause these problems. Um, I understand his concern there, and it is shocking to think that genuine Christians could do this. But it seems to me, again, that that Paul is addressing something that was actually happening. It's not just a hypothetical uh, situation. It seems to me, as I've I've explained previously, that you have... uh, at least professing Christians here, and we don't know for certain that uh, we don't know their hearts, but at least professing Christians here, members of the church, attending pagan feasts, visiting uh, temple prostitutes. So, yes, it's astonishing. And so Paul is, is addressing it head on. But, but that's the bigger problem, all right? So, number one is the problem of eating meat offered to idols. But bigger than that is doing it in the middle of a pagan sacrificial feast. That is actually going in and um, worshiping with them. That's, that's what it amounts to. I think that's the argument that, that Paul is going to make. Now, I think we could even go a little farther than that with it. Because I think Paul does, again by implication. So, so there's something even beyond that. In other words, why would somebody go participate in a pagan feast and, and essentially participate in a worship ceremony of an idol. Well, um, somehow, and, and I've, I, you know, why, why would this be appealing? I mean, I've tried to think about that. But somehow this, this was desirable to them. So, I, I would say the, the bottom line is, and this is always the bottom line with idolatry, you're treasuring something Above Christ. You're putting something. Something is more pleasing to me, more desirable to me, than the, than the, the simple knowledge of Christ. Being in relationship to Him. Fellowship with Him. So that's always the, the bottom line with idolatry. We're loving something more than God. Now, I raise that because this... I, I think... Um, this question comes up that is so common, and I can I can hear the, the the Corinthians asking this, and I've heard it asked myself, uh, not by Corinthians, and I probably said it myself. But we we say things like, um, "Can't I do this and still be a Christian?" Or maybe we're a little maybe we don't put it in question form. Maybe we're a little more forceful with it. You know, like the we've seen evidence of with the Corinthians here. I have liberty to do this as a Christian because this is not where true righteousness lies. So you so you kind of take a, a you know what we often call a half truth and build your position on it and then practice according to it. So they're insisting upon. Liberty, which in this case manifests itself by going to pagan sacrificial ceremonies and participating and eating the meat sacrificed to idols. Now again, 
just for a little background, Paul's been dealing with this particular thing ever since chapter 8, verse 1. And he's now winding down his argument against it. Um, now, the things I just mentioned, which, again, uh, bottom line is seeking one's own pleasure or glory or loving something more than loving Christ or seeking the glory of Christ or seeking pleasure in Christ. Um, we're going to be dealing with that, Lord willing, all day today because we're going to, that's still going to kind of be the, the main topic this evening in verses 23 through 33 where we kind of get the answer to it, right? That's our key verse. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So like we were talking about in Sunday school earlier, um, in our former life, pre-salvation, we were all about self-glory. Now, we're still tempted to do that here, but we cannot surrender to it. And, and I think that's a big part of Paul's argument. Notice verse 14. We've got a little bit of the greater context. Now, notice verse 14. starts off with the, ver- the word, therefore. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So, so Paul has taken the issue from simply eating meat offered to idols to showing what it really, in essence, is to do that, to participate in these feasts, is idolatry. And as we saw last week, he gives warnings against that from, from uh, Old Testament uh, events. And he says... In verse six, now these chapter ten, verse six. Now these things took place. That is, these events in the Old Testament where Israel rebelled and was judged by God. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So he's implying that the Corinthians are desiring evil, or at least in danger of going down that going down that road. And Paul says, we don't want to go there. Do not, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8, do not indulge in sexual immorality. We must not, Paul says, as some of them did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Verse 10, we must not grumble. Do not grumble. That is, don't, don't be dissatisfied with what God has provided as some of them did, the, the children in the, in the wilderness. In this case, um, the problem here, remember we've seen going all the way back to chapter 1, the problem here is the Corinthians being dissatisfied with the truth, dissatisfied with the Gospel. It's not good enough. It's, it's seen as foolishness by the world, and so that's embarrassing, right? For Christians, you don't want to be thought of as foolish in the eyes of the world. And so they're grumbling and they're seeking worldly wisdom, and Paul's warning against that. Now, again, verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters, and then he gives, lays out all of those examples and those warnings. And then in verse 14, he says, therefore, flee from idolatry. Now, notice how this is worded. Just to go back to uh, my example with my friend a few moments ago who, who uh, insisted that this, and I don't know if he ever changed his mind on this, but he, he insisted that this is hypothetical. N- notice what Paul says here. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. He's telling the beloved, Christians, To quit idolatry. And in fact, run from it. Flee from it. That's great advice. I mean, when you think about temptation, what, what, is, what is the proper response for the Christian when it comes to temptation? Is, is it to just go into it with a mindset, well, let me, let me see how deep I can get in and how, how, let me see what level of endurance I'm operating at. Do we seek more and more exposure so that we can, you know, get tougher? No, the, response, the, the proper response is run from it. Flee temptation. 
In this case, idolatry. Flee idolatry. Right? Um, y'all have heard the story about, I just think it's a great example, but y'all have <coughs> heard the story about Billy Graham who refused to even get on an elevator um, along with a, a, a woman. If it, was just, if it was just himself and another woman, he said he would let the doors close and wait for the next elevator. Because he wasn't going to give any opportunity. Um, you know, not that uh, he was afraid that the woman was going to make an advance to him or anything like that. He just didn't want any appearance of evil. That's kind of the idea here. Run from it. Flee from it. It's not as hard sometimes as we make it out to be. And certainly in this case, um, it, they, need, they need to stop it. Quit it. So Paul says, um, there's, there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. Um, and God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape. So he's saying, there's an escape route, so get out! Don't, don't try to endure it. Get out. Take the escape route. And that's how you endure it. That you may be able to endure it. Use God's escape route. So therefore, my beloved, free from, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, Paul's going to use, a, I think, a really interesting argument here, and I think it's very important. And I want to point out something as we go through these next few verses. Um, what I'm going to call the, the uh, principle of participation. Right? Because, again, here's, here's the idea. You know, we tend to think, can I do this and get away with, with, with it? And, you know, can I do this and still be a Christian? Can I do that and still be a Christian? And you can hear the Corinthians saying, wait a minute. I've been born again. I have liberty in Christ. I go to the feast knowing that the idol is nothing. We know we've been taught there's only one true God. And so, yes, these people are offering uh, sacrifices to idols, but we, we understand that the idol is nothing. We understand that the whole thing is superstition. And so we take the liberty to do it because, hey, it can't harm us because there's nothing to it. Well, Paul comes back with this. And let me go ahead and read through it and then come back and deal with it a little bit. The cup of blessing, verse 16. Paul says, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. That's a reference to the Lord's Supper. Um, which actually, in the beginning, that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, that cup... That's one of the cups in the uh, Passover meal. Um, probably the last cup that, that they would partake of in the, uh, in the um, Passover meal. And Jesus took it and said, this is the cup, the cup of blessing. Which they refer to it as the cup of blessing. This is the, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was saying, this, this cup, he's, he's giving them a, a whole new uh, interpretation of the Passover meal. Not, not that it was... A new truth, but I just mean they didn't understand it that way before. It's what it always represented. They just didn't understand it that way. Jesus takes the cup of blessing, the final cup of the Passover meal, holds it up, and tells his disciples, This is the new covenant in my blood. And Paul here is referring to that cup. Today, you know, we do it with a little, um, I don't even know what you call them, the little, the little cups that we have the grape juice in. Uh, that's, that's how we observe. Uh, and partake of that cup, the cup of blessing. Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Interesting question. The bread that we break, that's, that's the bread of the Lord's Supper. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Interesting question. And verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, Paul gives some logic behind what he's saying, again, from the Old Testament, from the, from the, uh, the uh, Levitical uh, pre, uh, sacrificial system, 
Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Now, let me stop right there for a minute. Let's go back to Paul's argument. With the people of Israel, in verse 18, he says, Consider, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat... The sacrifices, participants in the altar. So the people of Israel would bring the sacrifices, and some of the meat would go to the priest for the priest to eat of, and sometimes the uh, the, the person or the persons who are offering would get portions to eat of, and the remainder would be burned. Certain parts of the of the uh, sacrificial animal would be burned up on the altar. And Paul says. There was a, he implies that there was a common understanding here. The people who ate of the meat offered in sacrifice were participants in the altar. So, so there, was, there was an act of worship happening there, which they're, they're receiving benefit from. Why, why did they bring the sin offering and offer it? Because they, they're seeking forgiveness of sins, right? And there's fellowship happening there. Communion between the, the person who's bringing the offering, the priest, and God to whom they are offering the animal. So, he, he raises this rhetorical question. Aren't, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? That is, their, their eating of that meat means something. It, it, it symbolizes something. It signifies something. In fact, I think what he's saying is there, there is an actual participation here. And that word is important. Sometimes that word is translated fellowship. It's the word, Greek word koinonia. Fellowship, participation, um, sh- the idea of sharing, you know, having something in common. That's going to be crucial to Paul's point here. Notice how, how he uses it. Look again in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then, again, verse 18. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice participant in the altar? And then in his exhortation in verse 20, I do not want you to be participants. So he's using this word, koinonia, this words from this word group, talking about a, a fellowship, right? So there's, a, there's a, a principle here of participation. When you engage in these things, you're actually participating. He's saying the children of Israel, when they brought the sacrifices and offered the sacrifice and ate the meat, there was an actual participation going on. Again, we we would use the word fellowship. They were actual partakers in something. Something's really happening there. So, there's this principle of participation and there's a reality that lies behind it. Now, first, he starts, in making his case here, he starts off with the Lord's Supper. Now, his, his, his main in, intention here, again, is, is to expose their idolatry and, and exhort them to, uh, to stop it. So, this is not so much a discourse on the Lord's Supper, but we learn some things here about the nature of the Lord's Supper that we don't want to just gloss over too quickly. Especially since we are uh, planning to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. I was talking to some friends this week about this. This discussion comes up often. Um, and I don't even remember what uh, specifically brought it up. He was talking about something. They had, they had the Lord's Supper at his church last week. And um, I forget specifically what he was even saying about it. But... but um, Something due to the lack, something about in regard to the lack of interest, and so we, you know, we got into discussion, and, and this is a major, I would say, a major problem 
in our churches today. Especially in, um, uh, you know, Baptist ranks and, and so forth. Maybe uh, independent churches, maybe independent charismatic churches and stuff like that. We, we have had such a reaction. I, I'm assuming this is where it comes from. We have had such a reaction to the sacramentalism of the Roman Catholic Church and others like the Anglican Church that we have a tendency to take it to another extreme. So while some of them are saying, this is... To have the Roman Catholic Church, they refer to it as the Mass. But they they would say, what we're doing here is sacrificing Christ again. And you actually receive some measure of saving grace in the participation. You, You eat the bread and drink the wine. And that is necessary to maintain right standing with God. Well, the evangelical world and Reformed tradition, of course, has condemned that view, and rightfully so. It's a wrong view. Christ was sacrificed once for all. And He's not, you know, the bread and the wine do not literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. You find no basis for that in Scripture. And it is not imparting saving grace. It's not salvific in nature. You know, you, you eat, you, you um, frequently eat of the bread and wine, and so, you know, you, you, you remain saved. And if you stop partaking of the sacraments, you, you're in danger of perishing. Well, there's, no, there's no grounds for those doctrines in the Scripture. But again, what we don't want to do is take somebody's wrong extreme in overemphasizing the Lord's Supper uh, in, in a bad way, and, and go to an opposite extreme and de-emphasize the importance of it. So I want to say just a, a couple of things about it here from, from this text and, and then a couple other observations as well. Um, in fact, let me do that first. <clears throat> why, why partake of the Lord's Supper? Number one, because it was instituted by Jesus Himself for His church and it was commanded by Him. And if you go back to Acts and, and you know read the account of the, the accounts of the early church there, they were diligent in observing the Lord's Supper. They they gave themselves continually to the apostles' doctrine and to the, the breaking of bread and to the prayers, and that's a reference to, uh, I think, the Lord's Supper. And the Greek there, and and there's a definite article, they gave themselves to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And Jesus instructed us, you know, as often as we do these things, we, we do it in remembrance of Him and we show His death until He comes. So, we recognize, you know, we're not, obviously, we're not Roman Catholics and we don't, uh, we don't. Uh, in fact, I, I don't particularly even like to use the term sacrament. Um, we 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 typically refer to the Lord's Supper and baptism as ordinances um, because they were ordained by Christ, commanded by Christ, and so we observe in obedience to Christ. We observe those two ordinances. Baptism initially, when when one comes to faith in Christ, we are baptized in obedience to Christ, and then continually on an ongoing, frequent basis. We participate in the Lord's Supper, commemorating His death for us. So we do it because it was instituted by Christ. It was commanded by Christ. It represents the Lord's death. And, this is what Paul is getting at here, and because it contains a, or a spiritual reality. Now, let's go back here to verse um, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. That, that phrase there is interesting in itself. In the, in the, in the Jewish um, observance of Passover, which I've, I've never 
um, participated in. It would be interesting to, um, but I've, I've never participated in. But but when they when they and I'm, my understanding is when they drink of the different cups throughout the meal, when they when they take the cup of wine, they bless God for, for His goodness. And that's what Paul is referring to here. The cup of blessing which we bless. Did you notice how that's worded? Which we bless. So they, they would take of the cup of the Lord's Supper in this instance and gratefully, thankfully bless God. And, and it is commonly referred to as the Eucharist. That's, that's a term from the, the Greek word um, which means thanksgiving or giving thanks. But that's not the word he uses here. Um, some translations have the cup of thanksgiving, but it, it, that's not the case here. Although, um, that, is, you know, that, that idea is behind it. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, this is what I want us to notice, this principle of participation. Paul is saying when we as Christians partake of the cup, and this is why it is important, it is not a meaningless symbol, tradition. Oh, this is just, you know. I had a guy tell me years ago, and he, he wasn't a Christian, by the way, but he said, you know, I kind of, I kind of view it as a, as a bunch of buddies sitting around having a good time drinking beer together, you know. No. It is a participation. It is an act of worship. It is, it is an act of thanksgiving to God, blessing God in obedience to Christ, partaking of the cup, which represents His blood, partaking of the bread, which represents His body. It's a, it's a, it's a public, when I say public, I just, I just, among the church, it's a corporate act of worship and thanksgiving to God in acknowledgement of the new covenant showing forth Christ's death for us and demonstrating our own participation in the life of Christ. Jesus said that you must eat His flesh and drink His blood. In John 6. Now, I don't think, you know, that he was specifically referring to the Lord's Supper in John 6, but I do think this, the Lord's Supper represents that. It represents that eating of His flesh and drinking of His blood. In other words, it is, again, an outward act of participation in Christ where that is symbolized in a strong way. In fact... um, I'm not even sure, um, just, just uh, thinking of it as merely a symbol is enough. I think that's Paul's point here. There, there is fellowship happening here. Fellowship with one another as fellow believers, which is extremely important. Again, this is another thing that we, we downplay so much. You go back to the book of Acts, they were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the breaking of the bread and of the prayers and meeting in the temple, and from house to house, daily. The point is, they were putting great emphasis on community as Christians. Dwelling together in this world, encouraging one another, and seeking to do uh, God's will, honor God together. And so this is part of that. They would come together, partake of the Lord's Supper, demonstrating or showing forth His death until He comes, commemorating His death, and in doing so, giving thanks to Him in obedience to His command. So Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Well, that's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is yes. Paul's, Paul's saying we understand that as Christians. It's, it's a participation in the blood of Christ. And the bread we break is a participation in the body of Christ. What kind of participation is it? Well, depending on who you talk to, again, if you talk to the Roman Catholics, they're going to say the bread literally becomes the body of Christ, the blood literally becomes the blood of Christ, and so you're literally eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ in obedience to His, his uh, 
his mandate in John 6. You, you talk to the Lutherans, and it gets a little more fuzzy because then they say, well, we don't believe that the, the blood and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ, but He's in, with, and under the elements as you partake of them. Now, what does that mean, in, with, and under? Well, I don't, I don't know that they've ever really defined that. I, mean, I don't know what it means. It, it doesn't even make sense to me. He's in, with, and under the elements. And then you talk to evangelicals, and, and you'll still get some different um, nuances, but, but essentially, you know, like the, the, the traditional Baptist view, is it's just symbolic. Now, I do think Paul um, gives us some insight here in the next verse, 17. The, the main thing is, this is a fellowship between believers and with Christ. Paul says in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Interestingly, now, um, he's, he's describing the bread as being, we, we know that it represents the body of Christ, right? But now he's describing that as representing the church. The bread represents the body of Christ, the body of Christ being the church. We're not talking about his actual flesh, but there's, there's a participation here among believers. There is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And I know, again, this may be a little strange to us, because today when we pass the, uh, the plate, the Lord's Supper uh, plate, the communion dish, you see all these little bitty wafers. I remember, you know, as a kid in the Methodist church, and I always, always wanted more. I mean, I don't know. Them, them th- those, are, those things are so bland, but, but, I, but they're good, you know. There's something addictive about them. But you see all these little wafers, and so we kind of lost that imagery that Paul... In, in the Passover feast, they would take one piece of bread. We used to do this when we had, sometimes when we had uh, home meetings. Uh, you know, we'd take the... In fact, I can remember Sheila making bread. And, and we would take the one piece of bread and tear off of it, pass it around. That's what they did in the Passover meal. That's what the early Christians did. So that's why he's saying one bread. So what Paul is saying is that that is imagery of the one body. The solidarity. The body of Christ. So there's one bread, one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And we've already dealt with the next few verses. He just shows how, again, those who participate in eat of the the, uh, sacrifices are participating in the altar there. So Paul's point is there is a real participation there. In partaking of the... And this is why it's so important, brothers and sisters. In partaking of the Lord's Supper, there is a real participation there. That is a real act of worship. This is Paul's point. And the reason he's saying this, because he's saying if you're going to go and do the pagan version of this, don't think that you can do that without committing idolatry. You're engaging in real participation in an idolatrous act. So, in other words, it's a real act of worship. And you can say all day long, well, we've got liberty, we know better, we know there's no other God but one God, and so we just go... I don't know. Why do they go? Well, because the, the, the meat's good. Maybe they cook it good. He, he, he doesn't really go into de- detail there, but we do know back from verse 6. He says, these things in the Old Testament took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil. So, in some form, the Corinthians are desiring whatever evil is going on in the pagan temples. That's strange, isn't it, for a believer to desire evil. But then again, we can all identify with it on some level. Because we're not perfect. So there's the problem. They're committing idolatry. They're desiring evil. Now, Paul is saying you can't do that because that's actually an act of worship. He uses the Passover feast, the Lord's Supper, uh, rather to, uh, to, to make his point on that. It's a true act of worship. Now he moves into his prohibition here. Verse 19, what do I imply then, that the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is, that an idol is anything? In other words, you know, they could come back with a question, well, Paul, 
if, if this is really an act of worship, when we, when we go participate in these uh, pagan feasts, then you must be saying the idol really is a god, and so we're worshiping other gods. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There's no other god. I'm not saying that the idol is anything or that the uh, meat is anything. He is saying there is, a, there is a reality behind this superstition. See, because Christians could look at that and say, well, you know, those pagans out there, they're doing it, they're superstitious, but we understand. So, so we can go there and, 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 and do these things and partake of the meat and we're fine because we're not, we're not worshiping an idol. We know there's no other God. Paul says, wait a minute. I'm not saying that, there's an, that there really is another God, but there is something going on here. There's a spiritual reality behind this superstitious worship. Verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. Now, you've got to understand... Paul's talking about a reality that they don't confess. In other words, they're not out there intentionally offering these sacrifices to demons, but Paul's saying that's the reality of it. There's, there's an evil spiritual reality behind their stupid superstition. And so again, he's implying if you participate... No, there's no other God behind that idol, but there is demonic influence behind it. And if you participate, you are participating with demons. Verse 20, No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see what Paul is saying? When you, in, in the Lord's Supper, when you partake of the cup and of the bread, there's a real participation going on there. There's real fellowship, real communion. With one another, that's why it's so important. With one another and with God. So it's horizontal and it's vertical. And he's telling them, you're doing the same things when you go to these pagan feasts. Except, you're not fellowshipping with God, you're fellowshipping with demons. And he says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. That's the prohibition. Verse two, verse 21, rather. Here's the logic. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Now, hadn't, haven't they been doing that? Well, yes, they've been doing that. But what Paul, Paul is saying, that, that's not going to work. You can't combine the two. You can't worship demons and worship God. You can't, to go back to verse 6, you can't desire evil and be faithful to God. Look, look at the examples He gave us from the children in the wilderness. They perished there, never obtaining the promised land. It doesn't work. If, if you commit idolatry, then you are, by definition, against God. If you are worshiping God, you're a God worshiper, a God lover, then by definition, you're against idolatry. I mean, you, you can't worship other gods. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You see what he's saying? You're, you're, you're trying to sit at both tables. You, over here, you want to sit at the world's table. Fellowship with the world. And if you bring it up to the 21st century, you know, that's, it, it might look something like... You know, we, we, and we do tend to do this if we're not careful. We, we can compartmentalize our lives. And so, you know, Sunday I go to church. I mean, that's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. And I go and I worship God in church. <clears throat> Sunday afternoon, may not even wait till Monday. Sunday afternoon, we can turn on ESPN and worship another God. Not necessarily. I'm not saying if you watch football, you worship other God. I'm just saying 
But I think that does happen, and I'm trying to give you a practical example. Monday morning. Maybe we've got you know the kind of career that just consumes our life. Or, or maybe it's not even a career that we like, but we're living for the paycheck. And so, from Monday through Friday, that's the God we worship. I mean, that's the way we think of it in our mind. You know, I've got, I got to get out there and get all I can get in this world. And Jesus warns against that. He said, you can't do that. You can't serve God and man. Now, is it wrong to work? Of course it's not wrong to work. Just like I was saying, not wrong, wrong to watch football either. But it can be if that's where your heart is. So we try to sit at the world's table and we pursue the same things the world does. The same entertainment. The same life goals. You know, we talk about making all the money that we can make so that we can retire and, I don't know, drive around the country in a RV or whatever. Get a house on the beach. Those things are kind of beside the point. I mean, it's just the idea of living for self. In other words, we, we seek the same comforts, the same luxuries. If we're not careful, our hearts treasure the same things that the world treasures. And so we talk about the same things. We spend money on the same things. We sit at the world's table, and then at the what we think of as the proper time, the right time, we sit at the Lord's table. And Paul is saying you can't do that. Jesus is saying you can't do that. You can't serve God and mammon, money. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Again, using rhetorical questions to make a, make a point. Because the answer is no. We don't, want, we don't want to provoke God to jealousy. But Paul saying, but that's what we're doing when we love other things. When we pursue evil instead of pursuing Christ. When we desire, as it says in verse 6, when we desire evil instead of desiring holiness, true holiness. We're provoking the Lord to jealousy. We're acting as though we're stronger than He. Well, we've got to quit. I mean, here, let, me, let me give you a psalm that, that I think kind of sums it up. This is what Paul is looking for. So, so again, don't, don't be distracted by the examples because uh, what's the issue is the heart. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I think that's what Paul's looking for. Because from all appearance here, if, if this is even possible, and ultimately it's not, I mean, it certainly can't be an ongoing thing, but from all appearance here, the Corinthians have a split, divided heart. Love the world. Love God. I, I, I went back and listened. Danny preached a good message on that, by the way, a couple of weeks ago. Very good. So John warned about the same thing. If you love the world, you're, you're an enemy of God. So the bottom line is this. God wants all of our heart. All of it can't be divided. Can't love anything else more than Him. So we can pray like the psalmist. Unite my heart to fear Your name. I want to come back tonight, Lord willing, and, and, and Paul's and, and the rest of this chapter are really going to kind of 
take that whole idea home and give us the positive side, again, in verse 31, what we are to do. Seek the glory of God in all things. In all things. A united heart. United in purpose. I'm not meaning, you know, all of us being united, although, you know, we, we want that as well. But I mean my, my own heart. Your own heart. United in purpose. So that we're not divided in what we're in pursuit of. So that we are singular in our pursuit. Pursuing the glory of God. Would you stand please? And if you are a member of the body of Christ, that is, you, you, you know Jesus, you know that He saved you from sin, then uh, certainly you're invited to partake with us tonight of the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's not required that you be a member of Fillmore Baptist Church. It, it is required that you are saved, that you've been born again, that you know the Lord. And I encourage you to do that because it's important, because Jesus commanded it, and because it is a real participation and giving of thanks. Let's pray. Danny Taylor, you mind leading us in a word of prayer and we'll dismiss, please. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.